17 welcome back uh to the next episode it's monday april 20th uh 2020 we are we've i've lost count of the days of our lockdown i think we're probably day 38 or so i can't even of a national emergency but i really lost count um my back hurts pretty bad from Sitting. sitting a lot more than usual um, haven't been to the gym in that many days and definitely feel it. Yeah, we went to the gym the last time, the Friday. Of the lockdown, before March 13th, Friday the 13th was the last time of March that we've been to the gym. Yeah. Um, so tonight's conversation is about Karl Marx, the Marx and Engels uh, Communist Manifesto, a very famous text, one of the most influential texts of political theory ever. Uh, globally, globally, one of the most influential texts uh, in the tradition of Western political thought, without a doubt. Yeah, uh, you could see all about that in the slides that are currently posted on Blackboard. Um, Heather, can you guess what my pet peeves are? Like, what gets my pet peeves when teaching and/or talking about Marx? Um, I mean, I know some of them. Well, well, one of them, I think. Uh, if I remember correctly, yeah, I think it's actually been a little bit. It's been a minute, right, since you've taught Marx? It's been a minute since I taught Marx. Um, yeah. I feel like one of them is this problem where 
students don't say that the other texts are idealistic until they get, or utopian or whatever, until they get to Marx. They say that about Plato, but right. but I do I do find I do find that to be somewhat yeah, that Plato and Marx are like the only utopians in terms right. of these uh, these right. dudes. Right, Rousseau gets called utopian as well. Okay, I think so regularly. maybe you get some of that. So that's less common in my classes ordinarily. Okay. Though I think that there's more pressure to press the utopian or idealistic line on Marx. There is, I think, more pressure. Uh -huh. it's, a, it's an easier move, a little more available. Uh -huh. um, I think there's always the, the uh, universal garbage man problem. Who's going to take out the garbage? <laughs> Who's yes. going to take out the trash or some equivalent yeah. question? Yeah, that one hits me. That one hits um, me. But it's not the central one. That one, again, I, I think that it's not unique to Marx. It's just commonly comes up with Marx. Right, but the but there are, is a problem more broadly. Yeah, and also there are the, the cognate questions and other theorists right. that... That's what it's that, about, basically about drudgery. That But Marx gets, Marx gets an, another pet peeve that I don't know if you really know about. I don't know. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on another one. Uh, it's, the, it's the question of whether someone is right or wrong uh, in right. political theory, yeah. which is sort of a pet peeve of mine that I don't yeah. think you have encountered yet. But Maybe, but yeah, I wasn't thinking about that one. Yeah, yeah it's just that I don't really, like I don't approach political theory as questions of whether someone gets stuff right or wrong. Yeah. I approach I all these right texts assuming that they get some things right and get some things wrong, that no one, I, I think of these texts as like, forests, right. you know, yes. that we walk in, yes. not, yes. not like, uh, tools right. that we arm ourselves with, but that like we are exploring stuff. Well, and I mean, it, one of the things that's in a certain regard hard for Marx, I don't know, is that like, he's one of the theorists that we can all think so easily about the way he has been applied in the relatively contemporary of course, period. Of course, right? he's Which, very recent. Yeah, so that you have lots of people's examples of or sort of thoughts about assorted places where people have tried to turn Marx into their own yes. yeah. and, vision, you know. Yeah, and yeah. And that has gone awry. awry just as many things go awry or in its own way of going in its awry own way. Of, yeah. Sure. Sure. So that's the question that I like to bracket at the beginning of any conversation about Marx is that like we can evaluate this without it being like an on off switch, right. right or wrong. Right. And that we should have been thinking about all of our theorists all along the way that way. And I think we do a good job and then somehow right, we, though, short circuit we short circuit we when it comes to Marx. Though I think that may be fading. I mean, I'm really interested to know what people make of Marx in the – like were you a college Marxist? Me? You personally. Were you a college Marxist? I mean, I was a little bit of a college nihilist I think. But I mean – A Marx nihilist. You know, but yeah. – you know, probably more so – I mean, I'm sure everyone at my undergrad institution would have – Considered me thus a Marxist, yeah, not a nihilist. Well, they well, maybe know both. What a nihilist they was. definitely didn't know what a nihilist was. Definitely, I will say that I was in this class. It was with my favorite um, political science professor, who was my advisor and who is why I um, studied political science. Um, and we were talking about it was a political economy class, and there was this whole conversation about how basically the only motivator was wealth 
And so my professor actually called on me because... Cold called you. Cold called me because she knew I would be maybe the only person in class who was not just motivated by wealth. I went on to become a Peace Corps volunteer, those Mm -hmm. of you who don't know me, um, and worked a series of bad jobs (laughs) before going back to grad school um, and accumulating mad amounts of student loan debt. Um, so in any case, uh, yeah, she calls on you. She calls on me and what to happens? like say that I'm actually not that motivated by. And what do people do? They were like couldn't handle it. And what did that look like? What did their inability? Well, to they handle kept it look like? like pushing me on the fact that like of course I would want to like, you know, have like a nice house. And I was like, well, I mean, I don't. I'm not saying I want to be impoverished, though. I mean, I did go live in a rural village in Honduras where I had chronic parasites just like everyone else, you know, so. Right, right. um, But of course, that's not what I chose to do with my life. So they wanted to redefine your life goals that you had stated in their terms. Yeah, they were just like, that can't be. Like, you can't want, not want to have the nice house and the nice cars and like, there's just no way like you could want it to be. And it was as though not being fully motivated by money meant that like somehow you wanted to live in poverty. Yeah. And it was like, on off. Yeah. It, it was an on off. Right? We then get really like, black and white when it comes right. to some of this stuff. Where it's like, I, I like having, I mean, I think it's in this podcast. Now it's all a blur that we've been joking about wanting to be rich. But like it, it, having nice things is really nice. And yes. I mean, as someone who's lived in rural Honduran poverty, like I appreciate that like there's not, I'm not like killing mice in a bucket of water like because they're like running up near my bed you know like because my house is open to the outside you know i like that we have like a sure comfortable and there are many times and instances where you and i have foregone more lucrative paths yeah yeah mostly because it's not interesting to me right right or other values are more important Right, but I think I think those things may be related to. I hate to say it, but I think maybe what you're interested in, I don't know, values. is shaped by your values. Sure, not Sometimes. determined by them, but you know, shaped by them. Yeah. I don't know. We should get into this. Uh, uh, we should get into this stuff. All right, I, so was was college Marxist, yeah, I was a college Marxist, though. I was a college-age Marxist. Started, he came into grad school right after. Pretty strong right Marxist. It was a little. Um, the word I think we would use now is sort of a vulgar. Marxism, <laughs> vulgar Marxism, right? That's funny. Not vulgar, as in like rude, rude, but like vulgar rude. Marxism would be a very crude form of Marxism. It would be because of the last uh, really intellectually engaging and stimulating class I took in college was the spring of my senior year, taught by a fairly orthodox Marxist in an English department, and I think that really had a profound. Mm-hmm influence on my thinking i was relatively quickly disabused (laughs) of my vulgar marxism in graduate school but jesus it's a good thing there was no reddit at that time right because or or a particular kind of internet stuff because still don't know really what's happening there so on reddit period yeah correct well there's a lot of marxists on the internet yeah. There's a lot there's of a internet. Lot of everything on the internet. There's a lot of everything, but there's a lot of Marxists on the internet that really are interested in the right or wrong question. And if you are really motivated by that question of like understanding the right or wrong question, uh, I mean, I can furnish you with some YouTube channels and some links 
to conversations that can really get into like explicating certain highly technical Marxist questions. They are not what interests me personally at this point in my life. I'm interested in the broad shape of Marxist thinking that I think is best in evidence in the Communist Manifesto, right? Written in 1848, really comes to prominence after probably like the 1880s. Um, it really it was a totally obscure for basically the first 20 years of its publication history, like completely obscure, and then becomes a little bit more well-known after the Paris Commune of 1871, and then really takes off, steadily grows in influence up through the Bolshevik Revolution, at which point the Communist Manifesto is has the dubious distinction or not dubious, just the distinction, right? Dubious or not, the distinction of being like the central ideological fulcrum of the 20th century, right? right? I mean, it's just incredible. So it's super influential. Um, yeah. So let's just kind of jump into the text. Okay. We're going to go through in order. Uh, we're going to be following pretty, tracking pretty closely the order of the text. And we're just going to be hitting some highlights. There's lots of other passages that we could have looked at, but these I thought were interesting grist. All right, cool. This one is from page 74, um, and it reads, In the earlier epochs of history, we find almost everywhere a complicated arrangement of society into various order, a manifold gradation of social rank. In ancient Rome, we have the patricians, knights, plebeians, slaves. In the Middle Ages, feudal lords, vassals, guild masters, journeymen, apprentices, serfs. In almost all of these classes, again, subordinate gradations. Right, right. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of gradations, lots of importance of ranks in previous epochs, right? Previous in epics. previous epochs. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but what makes the capitalist epoch so unique is that all of those gradations of rank have slid away and disappeared and been subsumed into a central exclusive class conflict. And I like this one because I like to I like to be reminded that Marxism and Marx Marx himself is a theorist of history as much as he's a theorist of the economy, right? That like right. the economy to the extent that Marx is interested in the economy, it's because of its role in history. And that ultimately what Marx is most interested in are these broad questions of what moves history. And I think that we're starting to you, you if we focus on that early on in the manifesto we start to see things in a slightly different light and we don't get distracted by some of the other questions mm -hmm. and we can be focused on the biggest picture well and i mean as we th if we think historically in that way i mean the other thing that we could think about i mean as someone who studies social movements is how disconnected a lot of these people are from one another right so if we go back to the i know less about Rome, but more about the Middle Ages. Right. Um, and where you have these feudal lords, what we're talking about is that, like, a lot of these serfs and whatnot are bound to, like, manners. And yes. so they're disconnected from one, one another. another um, yes. By not only, like, they may be in the same, quote, unquote, class, right? They're all serfs, but they're not really all serfs in it together yes. because they all have different lords and the lords may treat them very differently and they're geographically very far Part. Right, um, right. So you also have a very different, it's not, it's it's both, I think, a kind of 
orientation in like space and in sort of like, you know, political organization. Yeah. There's it's not just economic organization that is shifting over the period that Marx is looking at, but also his like a uh, geographical and um, political. Right. Uh, a lot of geographic and political changes that kind of accompany that that shift. Plus, right. And also, I mean, this is Marx doesn't even include the church in this particular story of gradations of rank, right? right. So you've got all of these cross-cutting allegiances, alliances, and you've got a, a much more, in the Middle Ages, a much more complicated and complex and fluid set of political arrangements mm -hmm. that Marx would attribute to the underlying mode of production. Feudalist right. mode of production is actually what creates that fluidity of those arrangements and what enables those various centers of power to be creating these dynamic alliances among various things, among various classes or proto-classes. But right. to be clear, the, it's not fluid between classes. Heavens no. Right? No, no, the alliances the are fluid. The are fluid, but the, you can't really oh, God, no. ever not be a serf. <laughs> right, right, right. Great rigidity vertically. Right. And great fluidity horizontally. Right. Correct, yeah. correct. That Marx would attribute all, again, to, it's because of feudalism. Right. Right? It's the feudal mode of production. Right. All right. Okay. Let's all keep right. moving. So moving on. 75. Now we're moving into the modern period here. Modern industry has established the world market, for which the discovery of America paved the way. This market has given an immense development to commerce, to navigation, to communication by land. This development has, in, turn, in its turn, reacted on the extension of industry, and in proportion as industry, commerce, navigation, railways extended, in the same proportion, the bourgeoisie developed, increased its capital, and pushed into the background every class handed down from the Middle Ages. All right. So, bingo. The creation of a global market, a single global market, constituted through proto and early capitalist modes of production, essentially shattered the feudal arrangements, right? And this had everything to do with colonial expansion, right? has everything to do with colonial expansion. That mm -hmm. the, uh, the discovery of America, right, is also, I think, a big code for a general movement of empires, mm -hmm. right? And so the, the expansion of all of these older Middle Age, Middle Ages, not Middle Age, but Middle Ages feudal societies, their expansion into other parts of the world, functionally creating a world market, did so much to empower economically the bourgeoisie, and, and I, I mean, sort of, I didn't even know this was, quote was coming next, but I mean, you actually also see, I don't know why I'm obsessed with this tonight, but that kind of geographical change, right? That you right. have railway, like the birth of like rail lines and like that you have this kind of, right, you've actually now traversed from Europe to the Americas and you know that you're having actual like the yeah. whole like physical kind of uh, orientation is also changing um, yeah, you gain how quickly people can I mean still compared to today it seems Im immensely slow but right like the fact of like transport is becoming much more rapid and much more possible right some things that were unimaginable are now right, like those connections are like now being made across the globe in a way that just what there wasn't the technology that would permit that in the 
in the previous period. Right. So he's partly interested in what we would call globalization, right? Absolutely. What, in the 20th century would be called globalization. Marx is talking about it in the 19th century, right? This is written mm-hmm. in 1848. And Marx is really interested in this particular phenomenon and sees in it a great political significance, even, even if its political significance is less apparent than its original economic significance, right? So Marx is going to derive a tremendous amount of political significance out of Mm -hmm. this economic, the economic empowerment of a new class, which essentially just destroys the other class relations. Right. Right. Yep. So you see here, right, what Marx is theorizing at the beginning of this is history. Right. Right. Like what he's mostly interested in is this great dynamic change in history that is enabled by technology mm-hmm. and enabled by or, and enabled by certain economic uh, changes that are happening right, right. and but different they're also technologically i mean modern industry comes about absolutely based because of on technology technological changes not yes yes based on actors change i mean it comes together but right yeah. and establishes relationships to right the technology as as a means or mode of production of society's resources and goods establishes new relationships to that technology. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So next page, 76. The bourgeoisie has stripped of its... Wait a minute. The bourgeoisie has stripped of its hat... Is that what it's supposed to say? Uh, Maybe. (laughs) The bourgeoisie has stripped of its hat... Every occupation hitherto honored and looked up to with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into its paid laborers. Mm. Now now we're starting to get into some of the more aphoristic parts here. Gotcha. Well, yeah. If you lose the hat part, right, which maybe, <laughs> maybe it's a hat. hat. I don't know. Yeah. We'd have to look it up, but uh, we won't I mean, look I it up right now. I kind of liked it if it was stripped of its hat, but I don't, I don't know what that means. Yeah. So what do you? I mean, um, maybe it, maybe it is actually that, right? It's like stripped of its hat every occupation that was hitherto honored, like that they were somehow like had their their hats, their hats. Priests and had it, hats. And then maybe lawyers maybe wore hats. Poets, I don't know. They Poets wear, wear hats. Or hat. <laughs> Berets man of, mostly. Man of science, what would he wear? You guys could make a drawing. You could make a cartoon for your response with the different hats that all these people wore. Go for it. Go for it. Maybe that's a forum thread. Forum thread. A forum thread. What post, hat? You could post your JPEG with the hats for you. What each. hat would be? The man of science. The man of science. And then they all just turn into a paid laborer who I guess doesn't have a hat anymore. Do you consider yourself a paid laborer? Sometimes. Sometimes more than others. Sometimes more than others? Yeah. Sometimes I guess I think of myself as a man of science. As a man of science? Who's been transformed into, or do you sometimes think of yourself as a man of science transformed into a paid laborer? Maybe, sometimes. Sometimes? Sometimes I do. Yeah, there's no teacher in here, so. No teacher. In this list. No. No, but you see again, here's more on Marx on the power of the bourgeoisie to reshape all of these former gradations and social ranks, right? That these are being annihilated. And all of these characters 
the lawyer, the physician, the priest, the man of science are being transformed from whatever those are, artisans, professionals, into wage laborers. It's kind of interesting because I feel like I'm going to like go with the right or wrong a little bit because as we starting to get to the predictions, I'm not going to fully push this, but it's sort of an interesting moment actually to think about this historically where I feel like if I had read this passage a decade ago to a room of students, then I could have seen a lot more argument about like, know that we still actually revere the physician and the lawyer, I don't know, maybe the, I mean, I don't know, the priest, but like the, the man of science, right, that there is actually some gradation. But I feel like especially in this moment with this like, I mean, thinking about, I just saw some image, I'm sure you guys have seen it, it's like going around where there's these protesters, you know, some in Denver anti-science, and there's like a man in scrubs, scrubs and yeah. mask, right? Standing Two people, a man and a woman. Oh, yeah, the image I saw, I thought, just had a man. Go figure. Um, anyway, um, but right, it's sort of that sense that, like, this is actually now somebody that looks far more like a paid laborer than a, you know, sort of someone with their, you know, reverent, re- getting reverent awe, right? They're actually being told that they're idiots and don't know what they're doing, and, you know, they're, like, reduced to being, like, concerned about whether they actually have, like, the OSHA safety to do their job, kind of, you know, so... I don't know, it's a sort of a funny moment, actually, to read this when I feel like a lot of these jobs in this present moment maybe actually, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. have lost their hats of Reverend Awe or whatever. Sure, sure. And this also, in addition to in addition to the way in which it illustrates Marx talking about the bourgeoisie essentially collapsing the ranks, right, into mm-hmm. one undifferentiated mass... It also helps clarify this Marx's sense of classes, which is really Mm – like there are two classes for Marx. Mm -hmm. There's the people that get a paycheck and the people that sign a paycheck. Right. Those are the classes. Right. And if you get a paycheck, it doesn't matter how large it is. It doesn't matter how small it is. Right. The fact that you get a paycheck, right, the fact that you and I are W-2 employees, Mm -hmm. right, that file our taxes where our primary source of income is from a W-2 is indicative of our class position. Right. Right? No matter that we make more money than uh, a teacher in the Syracuse City School District. Right. No matter that we make less money than uh, the coach for SU basketball. Right. Right. Like, we're all, as far as Marx is concerned, to the extent that we are getting a paycheck. Right. To the extent that our primary, that we earn our living through selling our, our labor time then we're part of the, that class. And the people that sign our paychecks and live off of the accumulated surplus right. of our labor, those are those are the bourgeoisie. Right. We are proletariat. Right. And then inside that, the distinctions actually matter far less to Marx. Far less. They don't matter to Marx, but they matter a lot to us. They do matter a lot to us. Us proletarians. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And Marx and, is actually aware of that. I don't know if we read any of that stuff in this. Um, and it seems as though gradations among the bourgeoisie matter to the bourgeoisie. Right. right. I mean, one assumes that they do or else that rapacious acquisitiveness might slow down a little. Right, right. Because you wouldn't need to win. You wouldn't need you to win. have won. 
because you you would well, have I don't know, but seen Marx yourself as a woman. That. But I don't I don't know. I think I it's know. kind of Marx has that right. There's that part where it's like the slide. I don't know. Maybe I'm preempting. As if we get there, I don't know. I don't know if we get there. I actually probably I may have taught Marx more recently than you. Oh yeah, because you were in that politics of equality course. I was. Look at that. I was. Shoot. So I was just recalling a part of. Yeah. It must have been a part of the manifesto. Did they read the whole thing. They read the whole thing. Because it feels like one of those maybe later parts that's a little. I don't know. Some of them get they get shorter, right? Is the each part of it gets shorter? Yeah. Yes, much shorter, much shorter. We're still in part one theories of history here. Do we read the? Are we going to get some stuff from the later ones? Oh, of course we're going to get stuff from later right, parts, well, parts to, two, I'll three, and four, to, all included jump, here. And then a little again. snippet from the preface to the 1888 English edition mm-hmm. by Engels. What about that? Yeah. I don't know if I read that. Introducing the Moore translation. Right. <laughs> all right, what's next? I didn't go that deep. <laughs> it's not all very right. deep. It was just included in the critical edition I purchased right. for the class. Awesome. Um, so page 77. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production, and thereby the relations of production, and with them the whole relations of society. Whoa. Big, big stuff here. All fixed, fast, frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air. Ah, there it is. There it is. The line. All that is holy is profane. A man is at least compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions in life and his relations with his kind. Yeah, so there's great... uh, I want to flag this little bit of cocktail party wisdom (laughs) Wisdom. here. The all that is solid melts into air, right? Anytime you're in a situation where people are talking about how fast things are changing, you just drop in. I mean, it's just marks, right? All that is solid melts into air. And then what? Yeah. Isn't that like a Kundera? No. That's Unbearable Lightness of Being. That's that novel. Is there a novel that had that title? No, but there's a great piece of um, political theory by Zygmunt Bowman called All the Solid Melts into Air. It's a 20th history of the 20th century. Somebody must have made some other shit titled that. There's a great John Martin album called Solid Air from 73. Maybe it was sitting right there. On the floor, the floor uh, before, but then I, I cleaned it up. Yeah, I think 73 was that one. Anyway. Solid air. I anyway. think that's what it's called. I don't know. Uh, are we talking about this? Wait, I, I think we have to talk about this one. This one's big, and this partly explains a little bit of perhaps what we're, it, it, what it we've been. just goes on, though, I yeah. think, with this question about the bourgeoisie having to, like, always one-up, right? Which is that as everything is constantly revolutionized, like you get better make sure that you stay on the capital you gotta side of moving. this. You right? got to keep it moving. On the bourgeoisie side of this because as all these things cause all this disruption, maybe you end up, right, like maybe you end up on the losing side of the crisis of renovation, you know. Right, so right. So you got to make sure you're not on the losing side of the. Right. And this partly explains the consistent booms and bust cycles of capitalism. Right, that you're constantly that you are constantly revolutionizing the productive apparatus of society. Right, in part because, according to Marx, the bourgeoisie constantly needs to reconstitute its markets for surplus labor. Right, right. So you need to create new markets. You need to transform new people into laborers who's. Uh, but also consumers to buy your shit. Consumers to buy your shit, but most important is the laborers. 
that you, what you need to do is to create a new class of laborers whose uh, activity you can extract surplus value from, right? So the technological revolutions of the late 20th century were about creating huge labor markets of people with programming skills, and we're still living with this, right? Mm-hmm. That like what Marx, what Marx would identify here, I think. So you're saying that Go ahead. In, this, in your interpretation here, what you're sort of suggesting is that the people that are still, in a way, a little too guildy, right? A little too guildy. A little too, right? You a know, little like too artisan, entrepreneurial, little, artisan. Yeah, like, you right, got it. That you got to bring those guys into the factory. You've got to get some butts is. in the factory there, right? right? You've got to come up with some new systems. I mean, this is story. These are stories. These are dissertations waiting to be written about the constitution of the proletarianization and Marxist sense of right. programmers, despite the fact that they make a fucking insane amount of money. Right. 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 They're still, according to Marx, they're still W-2 employees. I mean, I guess some of them get fucking stock options and stuff like that. Right. But, well, I mean, we're going to get there a little bit more, right? It's just part of how the whole labor market gets revolutionized. But I think that's the important part of Marx is that we don't want to get too caught up in the consumption at this point because this is 1848. Right, 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 right. We're still – what Marx is analyzing is the rapid industrialization of the see, world. I actually disagree that – He's because I thought when I read this the last time, which was like a year ago, that all that stuff when he's talking about the colonies was about the was partly about consumption and opening. There's a lot about opening new markets for goods. Felt like that was like I feel like that's like not insignificant. The sort of sense that this colonialism is like also this kind of. Expansion, expansion. But the colonies, the colonies were not themselves markets for the goods. They were zones of extraction by which raw materials could then be processed in Europe to then become. Right. They went primarily back, but they, I don't know. I felt like there was a part in there that I feel like you didn't totally ignore the consumer is all I want to say. It's not ignored. It's not ignored. I'm just saying that the central relationship oh, right. Absolutely. I don't do is, yeah. is about your yeah. relationship to the means of, of production. production. Right. And so, so this quote back here about all that is solid, what, mel- what, what, uh, what precedes all that is solid melts into air is about the, oh, right. the constant re um, – like you, I think your word was really good, the constant renovation right. of our economy. And, and I want to say that that is in part to, to create new – and to identify new possibilities of organizing labor right, yes. into extractable pools right. Right, right, right. of work. Right. And the ability to extract more from... And to extract, somehow extract more from right. existing pools of work, right? Yeah, just, they'll get the chips in our heads soon. They'll get the chips, and then they can just take it. <laughs> just have it. Um, yeah. But all that is solid melts into air. It's such a great piece of Marx, right, that like... That under capitalism, there's no, that that everything is soon to be destroyed. Well, and it's funny it, going off of what we opened this up with of my college, my college days. This sort of all that is holy is profaned, right? Yeah. You sort of think about this sense. I mean, one of the things that the students in my class in this moment couldn't understand when you were an undergraduate. You when mean. I was an undergraduate, right? Was your holiness? <laughs> how holy you were exactly <laughs> that definitely was not also what they thought 
<laughs> I could tell other stories about my religion classes. Um, no, but that like, I mean, I was thinking of it more, uh, more broadly of like that you couldn't have a value that was something outside of the economy. Right. Which right. is when I think about like all that is holy is profane. Yes. Partly that like the destruction of all anything that I mean, could I possibly that, be sacred. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And like that there would be something other than the most mundane struggles of life that might motivate you is like off the table. Right. That we are just being. Well, because driven. they're not mundane struggles for the bourgeoisie. The, Oh, the wealth thing, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. For the bourgeoisie are not mundane struggles. Right, right. They are life and death. But still, I'm not sure that they're holy. Definitely not holy. They're still, I think, profaned. Anyway, do you want to say anything else about this before we move on? No, all that is solid melts into air. All that is solid melts into air. Nothing. All right, I think we have a couple couple more cards here to go. Um, all right, next, page 78. Is this on the same page? I don't know. The bourgeoisie, during its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. Uh, and mm-hmm. then this is going to be moving into the next page. Modern bourgeois society, with its relations of production, of exchange, and of property, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. Yeah, right. And like this cool stuff, one. right? And you got this all this solid melts into air, yeah, right? I mean, Marks? Powers of the netherworld, you yeah, know, so, called up by spells. So Ingalls, you may or may not know, Ingalls was like... Um, he was, you probably know this, Heather, but the, our listeners might not. Uh, Ingalls was the son of a really wealthy German businessman who had mills and factories all over England. So Ingalls was like, he was the son of this rich, he was part of the bourgeoisie, right? He was the son of a rich guy, and he worked in his dad's factories and like wrote uh, criticism of capitalism like in a spare time or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And um, so he sends, he writes, there. The, Marx and Engels are involved in this group of, um, they're German immigrants in England and um, the Communist League. And Marx and Engels are hanging out with the Communist League and, they're, and they're, Engels drafts these principles of communism and sends it to Marx. And it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like I got some good stuff here, but like it needs to be, you know, gussied up a little. Like mm-hmm. it needs to, we need some, we need something more rhetorical here. Right. And mm-hmm. Marx, who had been making his living as a journalist in the left wing press, right, grabs the principles of communism and is like, oh, that is solid melts into air. <laughs> That's awesome. Right? I didn't know that story. Yeah. And, and puts this stuff like the bourgeoisie is like the sorcerer. Right. Yeah. Like, right. 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 Great gift for metaphor, great awesome. rhetorical gifts. You know, in addition to, I mean, Marx had a PhD in philosophy as well. Right. So, like, we shouldn't sort of downplay his intellect. Right. Right. But that Ingalls was really like the hardcore empiricist, right, uh-huh. of the group, uh-huh. right? And Marx was the, he was like the, he was not an idealist at all, like in any philosophical sense, but like he was much more interested in these larger abstractions. Right. Whereas right. Ingalls, I mean, many people would say this that Ingalls' uh, analysis, the condition of the working class in England in 1844, is like still one of the best 
works of what we will call like early sociology. Right, interesting. Right? Like I it never still read would be any other angles other It would than still it still holds up for many scholars of working class history and probably still gets cited in in uh, studies of 19th century histories of 19th century England. Uh-huh. Right? But uh-huh. Marx is the one who brings to it that great rhetorical flair right, and right. makes it a text. It's really I mean so I shouldn't make my like social movement students read Engels. Heavens no. Heavens no. No dry as a bone. <laughs> dry as a bone. Uh, yeah, so a couple things that are notable about this as well that I think are worth remembering is that Marx is not to the, I mean, Marx, yes, he's a critic of capitalism, but recognizes things that, that, I mean, he's not insensitive to the fact that capitalism has created this enormous productive capacity. Right. 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 (laughs) It's not at all an idiot about that. Right. Right. Like capitalism is amazing. Like it is. It's stunning. Right. It's colossal. It's colossal. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's this system and this apparatus that has destroyed a social order in 100 years, right? Right. Has destroyed a social order in 100 years and created the capacity, economic capacity, that, that blows away everything that's come before it. Like right. his, I mean, so Marx looks at industrialization and looks at capitalism and this like extraction of wealth, extraction of value from, from people's time and exertion and says, fuck, that's incredible. Right. right? He's they like, I mean, in this, in this little passage, he's got, he talks about them as colossal. Colossal. And then he talks about how it's conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange, right? It created this huge thing, right? right. I mean, and. Right. And then it's like becomes out of control, which again, I think goes back to your initial, like, why does amongst the bourgeoisie, do you have that rapaciousness of having to like, yeah, keep whatevering. Because it's like the sorcerer who's no longer able to control the powers yeah. of the spells he has cast. Or yeah. Whatnot. Yeah. It's a very Promethean story here, right? I mean, we should have probably read some of those those uh, Greek myths at the beginning of this class. But whatever. It's fine. It's fine. But there is something here that I think is a really nice aspect of Marx that I don't want to be forgotten. Maybe they, maybe they all read the Dallaire's Book of Myths. I doubt it. I doubt it. Did any of you read those? The Greek myths. Dallaire's illustrated volume. It's very good. It's very good. It's very good. A Pandora's box, a Prometheus, uh, all kinds of stories. Prometheus is the one that flies too close to the sun. Icarus. Uh, Icarus. What is Prometheus? He uh, uh, brings fire to humans. Uh, It's a very Garden of Eden kind of story, right? Repeated. We've got to return to Dallaire's. To maybe for the next episode, maybe for the next episode. So again, just want to emphasize that Marx is not someone who sees capitalism as like bad exclusively, right? It has created a tremendous productive apparatus. Right. And the people who have created it really don't know what they're, what they've made. Or to the extent that they don't know what that they do know what they made, they can't control yeah, it. It seems to me that it's actually not. It's that too big to fail. It's too big. It's too big. Well, right. It's too big to control. Right. I mean, like, it can right. definitely fail. He's it certainly fails all the time. Crises, right? Certainly fails all the time. But it reminds me. It does remind me of all that stuff that happens around these financial panics and crises and these booms and busts. Right. I feel like this was a common explanation of the 
of the great financial crisis of 2008, right? Is these people, the bankers saying like, well, you know, as long as the music's playing, we're going to dance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I mean, there's a certain sense in which there's almost an acknowledgement there of like, well, I mean, we're not in charge of this thing. Right, 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 right. Like we've made this great right. engine of wealth production. Right, right. Which it is. And also like in some sense of like in that too – you're going to keep dancing in hopes that you come out on top. Of course. Right? Of and course, of course. And then you know maybe that you'll be undone. Right. Right, but that you right. have to keep. Keep with, keep it going. To go big or go home, right? Like. Right. All right. All right. Page 80. Page 80. This is our last card for this, uh, for tonight. Or for this episode here. The lower strata of the middle class the small tradespeople, the shopkeepers, and retired tradesmen generally, the handicraftsmen and peasants, all of these sink gradually into the proletariat, partly because their diminutive capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on and is swamped in the competition with large capitalists. Ooh, here we go. Partly because their specialized skill is rendered worthless by new methods of production. Thus, the proletariat is recruited mm-hmm. from all classes Uh-oh. of the population. Look out. Look, Look out. out, everyone. Yeah. Look out, everyone. Yeah, I like this a lot because it does explain why despite – I think this quote best explains why despite the fact that you have a simplified set of class antagonisms mm-hmm. in the capitalist mode of production, right? you still see this – intense competition right because you have all of this downward pressure on everyone on everyone right well, everyone I, I think about that like um with your dad right sure 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 um who, who was, was a retail pharmacist owned his own uh retail very pharmacy. pharmacy very small pharmacy that, you know and was of course by the end of his career was working at a chain pharmacy because his pharmacies had gone out of business. Correct. Right, so that you see that kind of that. What did they say? Cardway, the diminutive. What did it say? Their the, their diminutive capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on. Exactly. It was. I mean, this is a classic story. We love this story too. We love the story of the small businessman struggling against the mighty corporation. It's a great fable. Mm-hmm. Right, it makes for a great moral morality plays and da 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 da, but uh, it's a real struggle. Right, right, it's a real struggle. Mm-hmm. That diminutive amounts of capital cannot compete with what what would they call this? They would call this what, economies of scale. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, and that that is happening in every sector. Right, that that pressure is happening in every sector as accumulation is com- becoming more and more centralized, right? Mm-hmm. And that as, as the bourgeoisie looks to turn more smallholders into proletarians, right? right? To create more labor markets, right? to extract more surplus value from, there's pressure on everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Automation in this most recent... Uh, yeah, series yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. questions and conflicts, right, is exactly this particular problem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. 
Right. And even though we in the U.S. don't really think about a peasantry, but certainly we could think about small family farms, right? The difficulty of small family farms to survive. in the Sure, sure. And I mean, I think we're seeing it, too, in this moment of like, I mean, I think about it. I was having this weird sort of thought that has really very little to do with this. It was like my own uh, experiment. Um, but OK, so right as we're like worrying probably in our own individual communities about the small businesses that we perhaps care about either directly because maybe they employ our family members or something like that, or indirectly just because it's like part of what makes our communities vibrant and we don't want to see those places close up because we worry about what it means for our community. Here comes right? the Walgreens. Yeah, right? Well, and just like what happens when like all this go under and like what right. you're seeing on some of these, like, okay, yeah, there's like small business loans, but of course she's getting bailed out the biggest bailout. Shake Shack. Or the like, right. no, they gave oh. back the money. Shake they gave Shack. back the money. Shake Shack gave back the money. Very, very <laughs> bold of them. <laughs> yeah, I very don't know. I saw a them. headline. I didn't, yeah. I didn't read any of it, but I did see a big headline about Everywhere. Shake Shack. It was, yeah. it was front page news. Shake Shack gives back $10 million. Yeah. Like, <laughs> anyway, my God, sir. But whatever. But I mean, the bailout is happening primarily in this level of like keeping making sure like our global financial institutions stay liquid and right like i mean like these like huge things are what we you know are i think you know primarily worried about and then yeah these small things that you wonder like are these people gonna like in a town like syracuse where there's not a tremendous amount of wealth like how are these people gonna manage this crisis then i was on a side note, because I started thinking about some of the like artists in Syracuse are um, tattoo artists, and this was in our, one of our other pad podcasts that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Syracuse's ink, ink game, ink game. It's real strong, but, right? But, but I was sort of thinking about whether or not things like that could ever be like industrialized. Not right. tattoos. Where you tattoos, the last like, artisans. The last artisans. <laughs> the last artisans, the only authentic site of human, <laughs> human resistance. resistance. Yeah, anyway, that's. I was like slightly thinking about whether or not that could be made into a... But on the flip side... I mean, you can maybe get a tat from a bot in the future or something, right? Like, tat bot. Tat bot. <laughs> tat bot. <laughs> maybe Elon comes. Musk is, can get to work on the tat bot. That guy's a big stoner. One of my students told me that Elon Musk is like proposed some like cross-country travel where you would like get from like la to new york and like four it's the hyperloop thing the hyperloop it's like a pneumatic tube underground yeah i mean if that happened that guy is an amazing huckster he's an amazing huckster well i want to write him with a tat bot amazing huckster (laughs) yeah i think you tweeted at him he's very active on twitter very active on Twitter. I'd be like, yo, I thought about a tap bot. All right. Wait, but I think what I think what Marx was more concerned about than the industrialization of artisans yeah, I know is is actually that. the proletarianization of former professionals, or what I think should be more worrying. And to go back right. to tie it back to that quote that we had at the very top of the top of the text, right? One of the things that he notices, and I think uh, for a number of people may, are more sensitive to this, but that you have um, extreme pressure of, of technology to reshape industries to make them more automatic, right? right. This was yes. why professors were afraid of online teaching. Yeah, I was thinking about that a little bit when we were. This is why doctors. Years, right? This is one reason why doctors get afraid telemedicine. of telemedicine or evidence or what they call evidence-based medicine, which sometimes they get, gets called evidence-based medicine, which sounds really great to us, the patients. But what really means to many doctors... It's a formula that they just, like, check off boxes and then they have to, like, d- give the right. diagnosis. 
Right. Well, and if you're anyone that has health issues and has to get these codes right. checked, you know a little right. bit about some so, of the issues. So Marx is far more concerned with the way that the needs of capital shape and destroy the relationships of production that are happening downstream. So he's really concerned, I think, with, I think, I, I like to emphasize this aspect of the proletarianization of formerly professional activities. Right, yeah. Right, because we just yeah. can't have that anymore. Right, yeah. like under capitalist mode of production, you get a paycheck or you sign a paycheck. Right. The end. Right, but I think, yeah, I guess that's right. But I would And guess so anyone who is somewhere in the middle, like a doctor right. in private practice who right. is kind of, kind right. of a capital owner, definitely, definitely a lot of those right. doctors, I mean, are basically capital owners. Right. Right, but a little more diminutive. Right. Not super diminutive, not right. like a pharmacist, lower on the totem pole. Right. right. But less capital than, say, a bank. Right. Right. They're not yeah. banks. Yeah. Like, I mean, sure, sure, that stuff. Well, I mean, you see that with the, I mean, I don't know a lot about this, but I know in my hometown, um, one of the things that's happened, and I knew this because, you know, my mom is older and all of her doctors keep continually getting gobbled up into the main hospital system, mm -hmm. right? So that now no one is outside of that hospital system. So it was like she used to have doctors in private practice and now they're part of like the main hospital chain in the city and... That's and soon it. those like, hospital chains will be gobbled up by other right, hospital chains, chains. that are, yeah. Like my mom's hospital chain, she worked as a physical therapist, gobbled right. up by a larger Catholic hospital chain. Right. Right? Right. It's just, this is, I mean, this is what Marx is analyzing and identifying. Right. All that is solid melts into air. Right. And it's sort of like a, a blob type situation. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. The, All right. The attack of the blob. Attack of the blob. Do we have, was that the last one? That was the last one. All right. Where we've... We're coming in still under an hour. So great, we're, great. We're okay. So we'll we'll have more uh, Marxist content for you. But I think the takeaways, the key takeaways from this conversation are really about the Marxist theory of history, that it's a theory of economic struggle, and the Marxist theory of classes, which I think is just most pithily described as like you're either signing paychecks or you're getting paychecks. That's and I'm, it. And I'm waiting for the cartoons with, or memes hats. with hats. What hats whatever. people have. Yeah, I'd love to see some of those. So I'm going to say that you get credit for a response post. <laughs> Absolutely, I'll have to make it now. I have to make it a forum thread. <laughs> that's a little. That's a little. I, mean, I can make it as a replacement forum thread. Some people might feel like yeah, they no, need, you don't have to make a hat. I was just, but it would it count as one. It would count. Yeah. Yeah, I have to figure out how to arrange. They could that. just post it in the forum. Though. They could post it in the forum. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't set up. I haven't set up Joel's. So. Of course, of I course. I'll, uh, it'll be. It'll gym. be. It'll be very apparent. And uh, I, I look to forward to seeing them. And, uh, you know, hope everyone's having a nice time of it. And we'll talk soon. Be safe. To preach of peace and brotherhood, what might be the cost? A man, he did it long ago when they hung him on the cross. The whole world bled.